We just thank you for this opportunity to come and to study your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see from all of this time that we're together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 29. And uh, last week we were talking about uh, the people that God would give a book to that they couldn't read and that other people would say they weren't able to understand. And this next section kind of continues a little bit on that. It's going to make reference to it. So that's why I wanted to update us on what we were at. So starting at verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by, a, by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are in the dark. And they say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay for shall the work say to him that made him, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say to him, he framed that framed it? He hath no understanding. All right. When I read this section, I think about our world <laughs> and where we're at today. But it starts out, it says, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but they have removed their heart far from me, and, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. He says, people say the right things about God. And we have lots of people who will tell you how much they love God and how, they, how God is, going, is blessing them and they believe in God and all these other things. And then you kind of look at their life and you're going, do you even know God? <laughs> you know, your life, your words say you know God. Your words sound halfway, halfway there. And those of us who have you know, the understanding of God listen to what they say and going, it's all hollow in the first place, but they're saying things, and it, you know, and it does ring hollow. You know, I know God. Well, what God do you know? You know? We need to be bold sometimes and ask them, what do they mean by what they say? And I get a lot of that out where I'm at. You know, people say the right, the right thing sometimes. And I hear it all the time. You know, well, I believe in God. Well, that's wonderful. The demons believe in God, too. They're not going to heaven. Uh, well, I believe in the Bible. What do you believe in the Bible? What part of the Bible do you believe in? I actually asked somebody that, well, you know, the parts I like. I go, well, that's not the belief that's going to get you to heaven. Uh, there's a lot of parts in the Bible that I really, really like. There are parts of the Bible that I have a hard time with because they speak to my sin and that I need to correct my life. And, and I'm just as susceptible as anybody else to saying, well, you know, God, I really don't like that, but I guess I got to obey it. Now, those who say, well, you know, those who say, well, I, I generally believe the Bible, they would take those sides that, that they don't really like and say, ah, don't need to pay attention to this. You know, it's not that important. And this is why it's so important. Are we speaking about God with just words? And it says, with their lips, they honor me. And this literally means to heap on glory. And I've met people who will talk great, great things about, about God and, and at least their perception of God. 
Uh, but usually the God that they're talking about is the God of love who wouldn't, ha wouldn't punish anybody. The God that takes everybody to heaven, there would be no hell for them. You know, and that's the God they're referring to. And they'll talk all about how great God is and how wonderful God is. And, you know, and I love it when people talk about God's blessings. And when something good, God really blessed me. Well, last week when you had the hard thing, that wasn't God's blessing. Nope, I was having a really hard time. God wasn't, you know, no, I think God was blessing you there and you just don't recognize it as his blessing and his teaching you to growth. Uh, and here it says, you know, and, you know, we look at things and I keep saying this over and over. Sometimes we read things and it's like, we're reading today's paper and, you know, it amazes me sometimes when people will tell me, you believe that old fashioned book that's out of date? And you, and you go, I, I read it, it sounds just like today's newspaper. You know, take out a couple of names or places and put in, put in modern names and modern places and you would, you would think you were reading the newspaper, not, not the Bible. And here it says, people honor with their lips. But he says, their heart is far removed, far away from him. Heart, our innermost being. And this is very important for us. Where is our innermost being? What is the desire of our innermost being? Are we desiring God or do we desiring the things of the world? And we're seeing this more and more as we go through in our life. Even in Christian churches, they're getting further and further away from desire for God and more deeply into the things of this world. We were talking about my discussion this afternoon, you know, with the individual at the prison. And, and you know, it's so easy to say, well, the church needs to become grown up and, and get away from this desire to be in the Bible or whatever and be more like the world. You know, well, my oldest son was a very good soccer player and he never got to play on a traveling team because I wasn't going to commit that much time to soccer. It would have taken away all of our church activities and it was not, it was not going to happen. You know, was he deprived? I guess in some ways. <laughs> but he was also brought up in God's, God's nurture and admonition. So I don't see that he was deprived. He was deprived of a sports activity, but in its place he was put before God. You know, and yet so many people that are even naming the name of Christ will say, well, we've got to have, because this is what the world does, we've got to have whatever, be sports or activities or work or whatever it might be, we've got to put these things in front of God. Now there is a place where we have to have activities. We have to live up, uh, live and have a family life and raise our families and everything, but it cannot be to the exclusion of God and his word. And this is very important. It says, with their lips, they honor me, but their heart is far from me. And, I, and we were talking earlier, it's kind of sad that in many churches, you have one service, maybe two a week. And if you're really lucky, you're in the old fashioned three a week. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and most churches have dropped Sunday night completely, and many churches are dropping Wednesday night. And then you've got many churches that have a whole situation where if some big event happens, we're going to go ahead and cancel church. You know, Super Bowl Sunday is a big one for churches nowadays to cancel evening services. Really? They do that? A lot of churches do now. Wow. You know, I grew up, I grew up loving football. And it wasn't until probably the last 10 years that I have ever seen a Super Bowl live. And that was because the church canceled Sunday night service and I went ahead and went to the Sunday night, the, the, the Super Bowl party they had, and I felt so guilty that I never went to another one. Because 
it's like I'm not raising the Super Bowl football above God. I just couldn't do it, even though the church did. And I, the pastor's a great man. He, you know, I love him. He loves God. He just loves football. And he doesn't see it as switching football as an idol, as an idol for God, you know. Um, and to me, it is. I mean, if we hadn't had a Sunday night service, that would be one thing. You know, go ahead and have a Super Bowl party and have a Bible study during halftime or whatever. But when you switch one out for the other, you've got a problem. And this, is a, this happens frequently in churches. Some big event in the town comes up and they'll cancel church for that event. And I have problems with that. I have problems with that. Now, that pastor is going to have to stand before God and say, this is what I did or didn't do and give his reason. Yeah, well, whatever their reason is, whatever their reason is, and they may be right or wrong, and it's not for me to judge them. I just have to say, for me, I can't do that. And this is what he says: their lips speak all the right words, but their heart is far from him. And we need to be careful. And I'm not saying you have to be at church every single time the doors are open, every time there's a Bible study, you have to be there. That's again between each individual and God. If God do something else, then be my guest. Go do something else. You know, just make sure that it's God leading in the direction that you're following. Um, I don't expect everybody to be at church every time the doors are open. Because you know, we do have the doors open a lot in our small church. You know, four times a week that we're teaching, you know, I don't expect everybody to be here every single time. That's a lot of time for, mo for most people. Uh, I just love to teach. I love God's word. And to me, it is extremely important. So we open that door. And as I share with you all, when I'm in my car, I'm listening most of the time to speakers. Now, both of my channels are starting to irritate me because they're starting to play more music than they used to play. And it's times when I have to listen to music rather than a speaker. And they're starting to irritate me. They're starting to drift into the direction of all the other channels that I don't listen to. Because I don't want to listen to music all the time. As a matter of fact, I want to listen to preaching and teaching. And these Many of these channels are starting, starting. I mean, granted, most people go, well, we like the music. I'm, if I want the music, I'll go to SOS or, 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 or K-Love or any of these other channels that I can get all over the valley. I, don't, I purposely not want to listen to them. I want to be taught because my heart wants to seek God. And God is telling Isaiah, tell these people, their hearts are far from me. They're saying the right things, but their actions don't follow. And this is kind of a very harsh thing. He says, they, they were far removed from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precepts of men. Now, this may sound kind of interesting, but what it basically says is they're following a checklist. Now, the precepts of man say, come to church Sunday morning, read your Bible every, every day, read, you know, uh, pray, you know, pray every day, and those are all good things. But if the only reason you're doing them is to say, I'm, you know, I'm honoring God, and your heart's not in it, don't do them. Because <laughs> if all you're doing is following this little checklist, all right, God, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, I read my Bible each day, I said a quick prayer to you, I thought about you once or twice in the day, <laughs> If all we're doing is working our way down a checklist, God says it's a precept of man. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. 
And this is why it's so important that God has changed us. And he says, I want you to lift me up and focus on him. The whole idea of thinking about God. You know, if I wasn't working full time, I'd probably have something going on in this church almost every day of the week. Not that I would expect everybody to be here, but just to have that opportunity to think about God. When I was growing up, uh, you know, when I was 16 years old, we went to ch I went to church at 5.30 in the morning with the other men of the church Monday through Friday to start with a devotion before God, prayer time and a quick devotion before work and school. Mine was school, theirs was work. You know, five days a week. Then we went there Saturday to do outreaches and then we went Sunday. So I was in church seven days a week and didn't think it was enough. And then Bible studies and everything several nights a week. I really truly believe that we need as much fellowship with one another as we can and as much feeding with the word as we can. And very important, our hearts seeking God. And again, if you were, even if the church was open all those days and you were showing up for the wrong reasons, you weren't seeking God, you're there for the wrong reason. You know, we want to see God change our life by getting into his word. And, you know, this is his warning to them. You know, you're, you're, you're saying the right things. You're, you're, you're even seeming to do the right things. But your heart is far from me. You know, verse 14 says, Therefore I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent men shall be hid. So he says, I'm going to do an extraordinary work, a hard work. That's what the marvelous means. Uh, you know, work among this people. And then he repeats it, even a wonderful <laughs> hard work. And then for good measure, he says wonder, which is hard to understand. So God is saying, I'm going to do something that's very hard to understand. Now, what's amazing for us is, as Christians, as spiritual people, we see God work and we, we tend to recognize. We may not even understand. You know, we always don't understand it either. But we see God's hand in it. What does the world see? Oh, you are such a lucky person. What, what, what good, good uh, luck you have. Uh, wasn't it providential that you got what, what happened to you? And they don't understand. They don't see God's hand. And they might even you know, make fun of us for calling it God's hand. Uh, and, I, and I love to go into people, you know what God did yesterday? You know what God did this weekend? It was such a wonderful time. And, you know, see the crazy looks on their face, you know, like, uh, you, you're just one of those crazy Christians. You think God is involved with everything. Yep, <laughs> sure am. Uh, but he says, I'm going to do this really great thing for the wisdom or the understanding of your wise men shall perish. And the understanding of your prudent men or your intellectual men shall be hidden. And it's, it literally means hidden from oneself. They hid it themselves. <laughs> and you know, this is kind of interesting. When you talk to people who are wise in this world's knowledge, how dumb they really are in many cases, um, you know, it, is, it is so interesting. You know, we have the people that believe in evolution. Even though evolution is totally unscientific, they believe in evolution. Why? because they don't want to believe in God. That's what it boils down to. I cannot believe in God, so I will believe in this system that says life started from nothing, even though I know that life doesn't start from nothing, that order came out of chaos when order, when everything we know goes to chaos, 
You know, and we look and, you know, evolution is totally unscientific, and yet that is where our worldly wisdom leads us. You know, well, we can't believe that there's a God who started all this stuff that organized everything, so therefore we have to believe that what cannot happen, happened. And then we throw in the magic of their, of their assumption, lots of time. You know, give, us my, give me my 4.5 trillion years, we can make this happen. Well, there's a lot of things that show that things aren't 4.5 trillion years old. And yet, their answer is, we're going to be dumb so that we can try to look, look to be smart. We're going to be fools. The fool that said in his heart, there is no God. And we're going to be a fool just so we can look smart to everybody else. And God said that was exactly what they would be doing. And it's what they have done all along when they reject him. And it says, woe to them that, that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, who sees us and who knows us? You know, those who work, who seek deep, and this means the idea of concealment and the whole idea of profound things. Many people that are in worldly wisdom sound, make, hide their talk and then it sounds so profound. They are so smart sounding when you, when you talk to them and you try to pin them down and they don't like to be pinned down. You know, they'll give you this long sentence that basically says nothing or says the opposite of what you think they're saying because of all the way it's, it's worded and when you work in trying to figure out what it is they say, they, they're working very hard to sound profound in the complexities of things, and all they're trying to do is hide. You know, who can see us? You know, and who knows us? God says he knows us. You know, he said in Jeremiah, he knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb. How much deeper can you get as far as hiding? Okay, I haven't even been formed yet, and God knows me. You know, you're, how much are you wanting to hide from him? Yeah. You know, how are you going to hide from him? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he is everywhere, every time, at the same moment. You can't hide from him. He says, you hide yourself in the darkness, and he says, behold, I am there. And then also in the Psalms, he says, you hide in hell, and I am there. Now, there's no comfort from God in hell, but he will see even those that are in hell who think they're hiding. And this is, you know, what goes on because God knows us. He understands. And then verse 16 says, Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter clay. For shall the work say to him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing form say to him, he, he, he has no understanding? Surely you're turning of things upside down. Our world right now is turning everything upside down. Whatever God says is good, they're saying is bad. Whatever God says is bad, they're saying is good. They're telling us there is no God, that, you know, that all of the true science is turned upside down by what they want to try to tell us to say there is no God. You know, and our whole world is being flipped upside down for the sake of making man feel good and trying to say there is no God. And that's exactly what they're saying, you know, eh, you know, 
We weren't formed. Yeah. Now, they didn't believe in evolution back then, but they were saying the same thing. There's no God. He didn't form us. You know, I don't know what they were really trying to believe in at that point for their creation story or their starting story. It wasn't evolution, because you know, evolution is fairly, fairly new in that, in that aspect, but it's still the same thing. There wasn't a God who started us, so we're not answerable to God. The ultimate bottom part of evolution was the same back then. Because there's no God, we're not answerable to God. That's what evolution is all about. If we can prove that there is no God, we don't have anybody to be answerable to. If there is a God, we must be answerable to him. And that's why evolution has come about. Darwin, who put it forth and so strongly, came from a Christian family and rejected God. So he was looking for the excuse of if there is no God and I can prove scientifically that there's no God, then I don't have to answer to God whom I'm rejecting. That's what it's all about. Are we going to reject God or are we going to turn to him and accept him? And that's the decision every single human being has to make. Is there a God? And if there is a God, I have to obey him. And then your next step is, is there a God? And then what God is there? And then obey that God. And our world is all built around, well, there is no God, so I don't have to obey anybody. And if I choose to obey somebody, we have designer religion, which I get to pick what I want to do, and I make myself God. Right. If I can choose what parts of each religion I want to follow, I'm making myself God. And, well, I got to decide. I like these, I like this, I like this, don't like those. So what have I really done? I've made myself God. Well, they don't actually take it to the point where they think they're God. They just think I can pick and choose what I want. But ultimately, that's exactly what you're saying. Bottom line, if I can pick and choose what I want out of all the different religions or my own brain and philosophies and pick what I want to believe, I am saying I am God, which is the ultimate sin. That was what Satan's major sin was. I will be like the Most High. That was his temptation to Adam and Eve. The day you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And to our day, it's still one of the prime temptations and sins that come our way. You can be, you can be like God. Just make your, you know, make your decisions. You think the way you want to think. You're God. God rejects that all the way. And he keeps over and over saying, quit turning things upside down. I'm God. I formed you. I made you. I have the right to make the rules for you. I have the right to tell you what to do and what not to do because I formed you. And the world keeps wanting to say, well, God, you know, we don't want to believe in you. Well, just telling you, telling something and not believing in something does not make it not so. All right? I could go out thinking that my broken down car, which I don't have anymore, but I could go out thinking I have a broken down car that doesn't turn over. I'm going, I'm going to drive to town today in my car. I could believe that full-heartedly, but if that car doesn't start, and I know that it doesn't start because it doesn't have a battery or a motor or whatever reason it doesn't start, I'm not going to town in that, in that car. No matter how hard I believe it, I'm not, that car is not moving. Uh, so just believing something is not so does not make it not so. And this is what our world is now telling us. Well, just believe what you want, and everybody's beliefs are equal. 
Sorry, not true. Truth is always true. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant to truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It doesn't matter whether somebody doesn't believe it. When they stand before Jesus, he said, I'm the way. What did you do with me? Well, I didn't believe it. All right, to hell. Plain and simple. He says, I'm the only way. You didn't believe it? The consequences already set. We need to be very careful. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? It's very important. Can we defend what we believe? And this is so important for us. When it comes to creation, I can defend creation very vigorously. When, I, when it comes to Jesus being raised from the dead, I can defend that very, very vigorously and very strongly because it, to me, is not even a question in my mind to Jesus raised from the dead. A little harder with the virgin birth because that one I can't prove. I just have to take that one on faith. Uh, Mary did not lie. <laughs> Joseph did not lie from what he was told. Can't really prove that one, you know, one way or the other. But the rest of it, I can say yes, 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 yes. The virgin birth, it was said that it would happen, so I'm going to believe that it was fulfilled. But, you know, the rest of it is very strong proofs on it. It's not even faith for me to, to believe in creationism. It's not even faith in me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You look at the testimony and all the facts out there and you're going, okay, here it is, here it is, here it is. Yep, he rose from the dead. And he did die. <laughs> all right? So we look at these things and say, are we going to believe? Are we going to trust God? Verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of the obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to the knot, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. That make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate and turns aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeems, redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob? Jacob shall not be now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that err in the spirit shall come to understand and they that murmur shall learn doctrine. All right, so God goes on to continue this. He says, in that day, what day? The day of, you know, let's, I'm sorry, I missed, skip 17. <laughs> Is it not a little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and a fruitful field shall be esteemed a forest? Now I looked at this one because I didn't really understand this one and most people, most of the learned people believe it's a proverb. You know, Lebanon was a very forested area. It was not cultivated. And there, the idea was, yeah, one day, one day Lebanon's going to be cultivated. <laughs> All right. Now we know that it's kind of cultivated now. It's not a forested area like it used to be. So... But, you know, it says one day it's going to be a fruitful field. And Lebanon was known for, in, in the scripture days, the forest of Lebanon, the trees of Lebanon. 
the cedars. I mean, it was a very forested area. It was not well known as a cultivated land. I mean, obviously they had some farms. You could never have a place with no farms, but it wasn't known as a cultivated land. Their, their industry was timber. And it says, you know, is it not for a little while? You know, very short time, a trifle of, you know, literally a little while is a trifle, a remnant. You know, so in a very short time, Lebanon's going to become a fruitful field. Uh, even if you forested a lot, you know, you strip, strip your land there, it wasn't going to be a little while, a trifle. And then, and then on top of that, that fruitful field will be esteemed as a forest. <laughs> okay, so it's going to wipe out this forest and then it's going to become a forest again. So we look at this and I really do believe that they're probably right. It's a proverb. You know, this not going to, it's basically saying it's not going to happen. It's something that wouldn't happen. You're not stripping all your forest to make it a fruitful field and then that fruitful field is going to be considered a forest. If anybody's seen, you know, cultivated land, you would never say, well, there's a forest. Uh, now, it would be very profitable <laughs> for you, but it's definitely not a forest. Uh, you know, if you can call even corn, which is one of the high, you know, stocks, that, you know, crops that grow pretty big, you're never going to call that a forest, <laughs> unless you're an ant. <laughs> uh, see the forest for the trees? <laughs> I can't see the forest for the trees. But in that day, the deaf shall hear the word of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall be shall see out of the obscurity and out of the darkness. I believe that this is a prophecy for the time that we now live in, where God has opened up the eyes of the Gentiles to see his word. And I love the fact that God has touched us. He's opened our eyes so that we can see. He opens our ears. When we get saved, and we've talked about this several times, and I've heard it so many times, people will talk about having read the Bible even 24 hours before they were saved and not understanding anything. It's, their ears are deaf to it. Their eyes are covered with a mist. And then they get saved, and the Spirit indwells them, and all of a sudden, it opens up. It opens up, and it's like the beauty of his word shines. And the more we get to know his word, the more... It shines out the more beauty we see in it and the more our eyes are open and the more we hear his voice and hear his word. And this is so important for us, to fall in love with God's word. And I love it when I watch Christians fall in love with God's word. And I wonder if somebody's not in love with God's word, you know, do you really know him? If you're not wanting to know his word, do you really know him? Is the spirit really in you? And I'm not saying there's going to be seasons of time when you find it hard to get in the Bible. I've got plenty of those. Usually when sin is reigning in my life, I don't want to be in the book because the book convicts. <laughs> it's like, uh, God, you know, I didn't want to read that. And we do that anyway, you know, but we're going to be convicted anyway. But when we know we're living in sin, the last thing we want to do is be in his word. The last thing we want to do is be in church. And I've seen this over and over in the last... Uh, you know, four decades, four and a half decades of my life watching people in church. Very faithful, strong with God. And sin gets into their life and they start slowly drifting away from the church. And the next thing you know, they're, they're not even reading the Bible or praying and they're telling you about how, you know, how much they didn't know God or didn't, don't care about God anymore. Sin will keep us away from the Bible or the Bible will keep us away from sin. It's a very, you know, uh, proverb that's been said many, many times over and over again. 
The Bible is going to keep us away from sin if we read it. But if we're sinning, we're not going to have any desire to be in the Bible because it convicts. We're not going to have any desire to be amongst his people because being amongst his people convict. And oftentimes we, just being a Christian, can walk into an environment that people that aren't Christians and watch them get uneasy. We haven't even said a word. We haven't even looked at them funny. You know, we just walk in. And God walks in with us and convicts. And I've seen it over and over where people just get un uneasy. I've had more than one person apologize to me. You know, well, I'm sorry I said that. I go, you haven't offended me one way or the other. It's God that you've offended, and he heard you whether I'm here or not. And I, and I will tell people that all the time. I'm going, I'm not your judge. If me bringing God into your presence you know, makes you concerned, you've got to get right with God, not me. And this is, even before I was a pastor, you know, the, you know, people used to do that kind of stuff. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I know, I know you're a Christian. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. You know, God heard you whether I'm here or not. And we need to make sure they understand that. Uh, it says, the meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Meekness. Meekness is a word we don't use a lot in our, in our day and age, but meekness literally means strength under control. Okay, a lot of times people look at, well, he's meek, he's, he's a pushover, they're a wimp. But in reality, Moses was called the meekest man that ever lived. And Moses was a pretty violent man at times. When he, when he lost control, he lost control. But he also had great control of himself for the most part. Yes, he broke the Ten Commandments. Yes, he struck the rock twice. Yes, he yelled at the people a couple of times. But, for, but you know, those handful of events over the 80 years that he led the, you know, the 40 years he led the people were pretty small compared to how many times he maintained himself. Yes, I know, wonderful, wonderful people, easy, easy people to, easy people to lead, lead. They always agreed with him and always did what they were supposed to do. Of course, we know that's being very facetious and not true. They were very grumbly and murmuring and complaining all the time. Uh, and Moses, in most cases, kept his cool. He was meek. Strength under control. The world looks at that and saying, you're just a weakling. You know, as they let go of their temper and they let go of their anger at everybody and anything. You know, and they abuse people. Meekness, strength being controlled. It says, the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord. You know, I was thinking, you know, joy. Joy is that strong, deep feeling of pleasure and gladness. To a degree, happiness. And it's deep. It's much deeper than happy. Happy is, you know, very transitive. You know, I'm happy when things are going good, and I'm not happy when things are going bad if I'm, and if I'm walking in happiness. And this is the same thing. Many people, many Christians believe that we're supposed to be happy all the time. Well, when bad things are happening to you or seem to be happening to you and you lose, you know, you lose sight of God, you're not going to be too happy. You know, even if you're in sight with God, you know, you just lost your house and your car and your family, you're not going to be, oh, great, God's got a great plan for me. Hopefully you know it in the back of your mind, but you know, there's going to be some sadness. You just lost everything. But there should be that deep joy that says, God, you're still in control. 
you're still in control. Oh, God, I, I really don't like the fact that I've lost my family. You know, Job lost his entire family. All nine of his children, all of his wealth, all of his possessions. There was great sadness. He was, he was covered with dust and in sorrow. But yet, he also had a deep abiding trust in God. You know, his wife comes along and says, you know, curse God and die. And he goes, shall we accept you know, goodness from God and not evil when it comes? He says, naked I came into this world and naked I will depart. You know, was he happy about all that loss? Absolutely not. But he had a deep joy and contentment that kept him honoring God. And it says, the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor, those that are in need, shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Again, understanding God is in control. And this is the greatest thing for me to know, God is in control. And I love the fact that he's in control because that gives me deep peace. You know, yes, I might forget for a few minutes when something seems to be going wrong, but usually I come very quickly, God, you're in control. You know, don't understand it. Not very happy that it's happening, but you are in control. And we look at these things and say, God, I just want to trust you. I'm going to rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, God. Put my whole rejoicing, God, you're the creator, you're the, you're the master. You know, and, I, and I, love the, I really do love the book of Job because you know, it really shows us Satan has to ask for permission to do something to us. Now the sad thing is that God gives him permission. You know, you know, uh, but the fact that God gives him permission, he also limits. Every time that God told Satan he could do something to Job, there was a limit. You can do this and go no further. You can do this and go no further. Now we look at it and say, God, you let them go an awful, awful long ways. But God had, has his reasons for what we go through. And he, also restored it. and he restores at the end. You know, whether it's this life or the next, he will restore. He will, he will bless. Paul had the same thing. You know, you know, and I love that Paul says these light afflictions after naming off all the things that have been happening to him in this world. And most of us reading that list would not call them light afflictions. But you have to read the rest of that statement. These light afflictions when compared to the riches of glory. Paul's full attention was, God, you've got blessings in heaven for me. That the rest of this is nothing. You know, everything I go through in this world is nothing. You know. You say you can't take it with you? material things can all be replaced. So I'm not worried about everything that I've lost because I've been able to replace it. I lost a lot of things, but I'm not worried. I got God that, that I, it can all be replaced and you can't take it with you anyway. So. Well, Jesus told the disciples that no one has given up father, mother, children, land, possessions that won't be given it many times over. And that is what happens when we trust in God. Uh, we don't, we're never losing anything. We really aren't. We're all, it's nothing but gain. We think about Stephen, you know, being stoned. And he looks up into heaven and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. 
And the next thing he says as they get ready, as they're casting stones, Father, do not lay this sin against their charge. Now, what a testimony he had as he's being stoned. Yeah, yeah. You know, then you got to think these stones weren't little tiny rocks that they were throwing. They were usually big rocks, you know, something like the size of a soccer ball or something they would pick up and throw. These were not light rocks just tickling him. These were bone-breaking bone, uh, stones that they threw at him that would be buried under. If he didn't die from the stones, he died from the weight of the stones on him. And he says, forgive them. Only God could give him that strength. And he was also being able to look and say, this is nothing compared to glory. We need to keep that in mind. Anything we go through in this life is nothing compared to glory. That's really kind of stepping out of your earthly body. That that is going way above. That is going so far. But you know, again, I bring up Fox's Book of Martyrs. Several times you see that same statement being made by the martyrs. God, don't put this against them. Don't don't charge them for this crime. What love is expressed by that statement? But but I bet you God was with them while that was happening. Oh, obviously, obviously. You don't say that without being really close to God. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is that is the love that we can have for people that says, God, I don't want, you know, even though they're killing me or they're hurting me, don't charge them with this crime. That's ultimate forgiveness. God, don't add this one to their, you know, you know, no, he's going to. <laughs> yeah. In our human psyche, absolutely not. Our flesh is going to say, go get them. God, they deserve punishment. Go get them. And this goes to the whole idea when we talk about we're not supposed to worry. Human flesh is going to worry. When we're living in, in God and his righteousness, we, don't, we live above the worries. We live above the, the human nature, the whole desire of God. You know, go get them, God. They deserve it. Uh, one of the reasons I don't really believe in precatory prayers, prayer, prayers of revenge, is for just that reason. We're told to love our enemies and to forgive, the, you know, forgive those who do, do evil against us. David lived before that, and he said lots of precatory prayers. David, David was famous in the Psalms of God, go get them. Yeah. Uh, I just don't believe that's for us to be praying if we're truly living the way God wants us to well, live. Well, that's a valid prayer. You know, God, you know, God stopped them from doing, keeping this, and that's, God, God's going to do that. Uh, but, you know, is our rejoicing in him? Is our hope in him? Uh, verse 20, for the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and they, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. Terrible one, the mighty. The mighty are brought to naught. Now, this happens even in our lifetime. We, we, we watch people who think they're strong and, and abusive to people. And so often, if you really watch them over a period of time, eventually, they come to nothing. They get overthrown. If they're in a gang, they get overthrown by somebody else. Or even if they're not in a gang, you know, yeah, I'm all strong, I'm all this, that, and the other thing. And eventually, somebody takes their place. And they come to naught. Uh, those that scorn God are consumed. 
And then this other one, and those that watch for iniquity are cut off. And this idea of watching are, is to arrogantly talk about iniquity. In our day and age, there's a lot of people who arrogantly talk about iniquity. It's sin. Sin. Yeah. Now, it is amazing. I don't sit in the, in the lunchroom very often because I get so tired of hearing what they talk about. Everybody's always talking about who they're sleeping with and, the, and whether they're going to move in with somebody or move out with some, from the person they're living with. And you know, uh, half, half the staff are homosexuals and talking about their, 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 their lifestyle. I get so tired of hearing it. They're arrogantly talking about their sin and not ashamed of it. And that's happening in our world. And yet God will cut off that individual and isolate them you know and we've talked so many times sin no matter what the sin is never fulfills never makes you happy whether it's you know a hundred different relationships with people or alcohol or drugs or work or anything whatever you're look, putting in God's place will never satisfy you know, if you're a sports nut, you know, your team was good this year and bottom of the barrel the next year. Uh, or maybe they're good for a couple of years, but they never make it to the big game. You know, uh, you, you're always looking and nothing will ever completely fulfill. God says that's not going to happen. Verse 21 says that a man that make a man offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate and turns aside the just for a thing of naught. This is more of what's going on in our world. You know, people offend at, are offended by a word. It's an amazing thing how sensitive people today are to the threat of a word. You know, one of the worst things you can tell somebody in this world, in our day and age in America especially, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, is that they're intolerant. Uh, well, you're just intolerant. And that's supposed to stop all arguments. Now, now, I used to have fun with that word when I was in college the second time because people go, you are just an intolerant being. I'm going, yes, I am. I believe what God says. <laughs> that makes me intolerant in this world, and I'm proud of it. Now, I am all for you know, being, being kind to, people, to all races because God says we're all one family. There is no such thing in my mind as a race. Uh, there's nationalities, there's some other reasons to maybe, you know, keep some separations, you know, because of the way, different ways people think, you know, about things. But there's nothing about race to be looking at. But I'm not going to honor the sin. When people say I have to accept homosexuality as a valuable lifestyle, I'm going, no, God calls it a sin. And if they want to say that's intolerant, amen. <laughs> it is, by their standard. But, you know, it says they're turned, they're offended for a word. And our word, world has all kinds of problems with words. And they redefine words all the time. You know, and we want to be careful of these redefined words. Uh, because we're seeing so much going on with what's happening and the direction this world is going in. And sin is being accepted. Sin is being promoted even. And you know, it's going to be such that God is going to snare people. He's going to turn aside what's going on. What they're calling good is going to be looked at, and he's going to say no. God has not changed his mind about sin. 
in, six, in, in the 6,000 years of our time, nor in all of eternity before time and after time. Sin is always going to be sin. And God does not change. And this is what gets told to us as Christians so often. Well, you guys just need to evolve with the rest of society. We've, we've grown past all those, those silly little superstitions that you're, that you're believing in. Uh, you will stand before God and, you're, and your stance will not hold water with God. When you go to God and say, well, you know, God, everybody was doing it. He's going to say, not everybody. My remnant didn't. My remnant didn't accept it. You know, and how many times as parents did we tell our kids, you know, when they said, well, everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's doing it. Well, if they all do it, would you go to? <laughs> yeah, I hated that statement, but, you know, but I understood that. I understood that. Uh, but, you know, there is no such thing as everybody ever doing something. Uh, and we want to be careful of that because that's going to be the excuse that a lot of people are going to try to stand before God if they can speak. But in their mind now, they're going to, their, their idea is, well, God, everybody, you know, or, or, or most, if they want to be totally, most people were accepting it. And God said, I didn't. And I'm the creator. I'm the one that set the rules. And in verse 22, therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. This is kind of an interesting statement. God says, I redeemed Abraham. Now when we think about why was Abraham chosen out of all the people of the world at that time, why was Abraham chosen? We as human beings don't have an answer. God wanted to. <laughs> That's the only answer we can. You know, why was Noah chosen of all the people before the flood? He found grace in, in the eyes of God is what it says. Was he really superstar righteous man? I don't think so. Because after the flood, he got drunk. And it was one of the first things he did after the flood. He planted a field, grew grapes, made wine, and got drunk. Uh, you know, and we see all these different people that God just chooses. Why did he choose us that become Christians? Because he chose us and gave us grace. Not for anything we did. He just says, I'm redeeming you. I'm buying you back. He says, I who redeemed Abraham. And while Abraham, when I redeemed Abraham, I redeemed Jacob because Jacob was in Abraham via Isaac. <laughs> He says, because I redeemed Abraham, I redeemed Isaac. And it says, he shall not be ashamed, neither shall his face grow pale. And this is the idea of such shame that it causes a paleness of the face. And we don't, you know, such shame, we don't really see that kind of shame in very many people these days. You know, people see things and it doesn't seem to affect them. And I'm just as bad as everybody else because sometimes we've seen things so often, so much, that we just don't see the wickedness of it. Uh, about 10 years ago, one of the pastors had gone to the, the pastor that I was sitting under, went to the, the school and he saw two girls kissing each other and it just drove him crazy because he had not, you know, he was aware of homosexuality and lesbianism, but he had never seen it out in the open you know, and I'm thinking, well, why, you know, why is that making you so upset? 
I should have been just as upset and should be just as upset, but I have seen it so much and so long that it doesn't affect me in the same way it did him. He had a very sheltered life. He'd been a pastor for several decades. He hadn't been out in the world seeing it. He he hadn't seen it. It was a shock to him. You know, uh, whereas I ran a store that had more homosexuals in it than straight people. You know, I was used to that kind of thing. I didn't didn't allow it in my store, but I watched them out in the parking lot acting ways that I wouldn't have accepted. And it shocked me back in those days, but I got, you know, more and more used to it. And that's the problem with living in the world. We can get very desensitized to sin. And this is why we have to be careful as we're out in the world. If we're with the world too much, we start seeing their sin as a horrific activity that it really is. And we really have to be able to be aware of that. We can't be judging them for their sin, but we also have to understand it is sin. And really keep that in mind. This is sin. It's, this will send them to hell if they keep doing these activities and don't turn to God. And here he says, you know, you know, Abraham, you know Jacob's not going to be ashamed for, for it because I have redeemed. When God redeems us, what wonderful position we're in. We've shared this so many times. You know, when God has redeemed us, he's bought us. We've accepted that redemption. God sees us as perfect and treats us as if we're perfect. He no longer sees the sin. Now, that's hard for us to understand. But God, has, God sees us as we will be. And because he is omnipresent in time as well as space, uh, uh, space or location, why can he treat us as if we're perfect? Because he already knows that we are perfect in his perspective. Now, we know we're not perfect. The world knows we're not perfect. The Holy Spirit knows that we're needing to be sanctified and, and, and made perfect. But God, the Father says, eh, you're, you're perfect. I'm, I'm treating you in your glorified state. What a great blessing that is. And that's, you know, we're not, we don't have that, uh, that shame in there. Verse 23, but when he sees his children, Abraham, the work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They shall sanctify my name. Sanctified means to set aside, to treat as holy. You know, and name is, we've talked so often, is the reputation. You know, name isn't, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, when Jesus said, you know, anything you pray in my name, they all, you know, there are a lot of Christians that say, well, all I got to do is put in the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer, and I prayed, prayed in the name of Jesus. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not what that means. It means to pray in all the reputation that Jesus has. Everything that his reputation, if I'm asking for something sinful, that's not in his name. That's not in his reputation. If I'm praying for something that will lift up Christ and lift up the kingdom, that's in his name, in his reputation, and that will be answered. You know, if I have asked for anything in his name, he will answer. Why? Because it will be for his reputation. It is not just tagging on, well, in the name of Jesus... And believe me, I've heard many prayers like that all my life. You know, I grew up in a church that if you didn't put in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer, you weren't, you weren't given a real prayer. 
That was their attitude. It was one of those unwritten rule type things, but every single person always had, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. It's like, uh, did you really pray in his name? You know, did you really? And back in those days, I didn't understand that. But you know, nowadays, I look back and say, were those prayers really in the name of Jesus? Or were they just invoking his name? In Jesus' day, they would, they would swear by the temple. They would swear by the altar. You know, usually, they didn't swear by God. They swore by all these righteous good things. And, you know, well, that's, they, they represent God. No. You, you're not looking at it from the right perspective. Are we really sanctifying his name, setting it aside, you know, lifting it up, keeping it holy? You know, one of the things that have really struck me over the years, probably about the last 15 years or so, was when it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How easy is it for us to take his name in vain? You know, you know use it lightly. We might not, you know, it's much more than just cursing. It's just saying something so light, not even considering God, you know, well, God wouldn't do that. Well, depends on what that that is and what you really believe, but you know, you may be taking his name in vain. We have an entire generation of children and teenagers and young adults that are putting OMG at the end of their text messages. Oh my God, are they really praying to God? I don't think so. Most of them are using it as a vain, light saying. And they're not recognizing that it's God. And they would even say, oh my God, without even recognizing it, being a light use of his name. Are we sanctifying his name? Do we lift it and elevate it high? We need to be very careful about this. You know, are we lifting him up? Is he holy? Is he righteous in our thoughts? And then the last sentence. They also that err in the spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmur shall learn doctrine. This is God's grace. Those who wander about in the spirit shall come to understanding. And some of this is just the idea, I want to find God. I don't know how to find him, but I want to find him. Okay? And there's times when I've done that. God, I'm coming the long way. I'm going around in big circle, but I'm coming, I'm going to end up back, you know, you're going to help me come back to you. And, and they that murmur, whisper, complain, shall learn doctrine. And we've talked about this many times. Doctrine is not a scary word. Doctrine literally just means a way of thinking. Okay? Uh, most Christians are afraid of the word doctrine. You know, well, I can't study doctrine. That's way above me. Well, I'm hoping you're studying doctrine every day by getting into his word and learning the way God wants you to think and matching up. And, you know, doctrine is not a word we use often in our 21st century uh, America. I don't think I ever use it. Probably you don't. But, you know, in history we have things like the Monroe Doctrine, What was the Monroe Doctrine? It was a set of ways to say, this is how we're going to treat foreign nations. You know, line upon line, precept upon precept, this is how we're going to think about them. That is what doctrine means in the Christian life. God says, I want you to think this way. Learn to think. Uh, In colleges, we used to, until very recently, we studied 
doctrines. We, we, we were disciples of a doctrine, whatever that doctrine was. So Medical, different. law. So that's a different word than doctrine. Same thing. A way of thinking. Jesus trained up his disciples by walking with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, teaching them how to think like he did. So when we read the Bible and we start thinking the way God thinks, then we're You're learning doctrine. Okay. Yeah, it's not a big thing because when you talk about it on the radio, oh, it's doctrine. It's this big, high college-like thing. And some people use it that way, but that's not what it is. It is a, doctrine literally is a way of thinking. This is how I'm structuring my thoughts to follow into a decision. When we talk about learning to forgive people because God forgives, that's a way of doctrine. I start thinking the way God does about forgiveness. I start thinking about God like God does about grace and love and caring for the lost. Doctrine, that's what doctrine is. When a couple chapters ago, when we read in Isaiah, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that's doctrine. God builds a way of thinking. And luckily, God builds it slowly over much repetition. And he keeps repeating himself and saying, eventually you're going to get it. Eventually the Holy Spirit is going to get it through to you and you're going to start thinking the way I want you to think. And that comes down to when we get, this, get to this place where all of a sudden we look at our life and we go, I wouldn't have done that last year, five years ago, ten years ago. And why did I do it that way? Doctrine is starting to change who you are. Change who you are and you're giving your mind to God and God's word is coming in and you're having a new way of thinking. Doctrine. Those that murmur, those who seek after God will learn doctrine. Well, it is. It's a, it's a, you know, and that's why I try to make sure when we read the word doctrine, it's just literally a way to think. And that's all it really comes down to. I'm learning a way to think that matches God. Or I'm learning a way to think that doesn't match God, which is not, which is not a hard one to learn because our flesh wants to do it that way. It's, it's much harder to learn to think with God because that takes the spirit convicting us, changing us. We get into his word, which is why I am such a strong believer of teaching God's word. Because the more of the word that we're taught, the more we will start to change. And then we'll look back over time and look, and look at where, our, where we've come and say, wow, God, look at, look at this. You've changed me. You've changed who I am. Can you learn on your own? You can. You know, and it's like I said, you know, if you want to, if you want to fix a car, I'm going to take a car because I'm inept when it comes to cars. And I go to the internet and I look up a YouTube video and I figure out how to do something. As soon as I go out to the car, I forget just about everything I've watched on the YouTube and have to go back again and watch it four or five more times. And finally, the 20-minute job is done three hours later. Uh, now, if I had had somebody who knew what they were doing out there showing me how to do it, the job would have been done in about the 20 minutes it was supposed to, and I probably could have done it the next time I needed to do it. Why? Because there was somebody helping me to understand and to show. The Spirit is that person for us. He comes into our life and teaches us. He teaches us the Word. He changes the way we think. And all we've got to do is stay in the spirit. 
And then he pickles us and changes us into something spiritual. And before we know it, we're thinking more spiritual, we're acting more spiritual. Not because I'm sitting there trying to beat myself into doing the right thing, but because he is literally changing who I am. And that's what that last verse is all about. God changing those people. Teaching a new way of thinking, drawing him to him, and being able to correct their, their life the way they think. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to learn to do things your way, not the way of the world, not the way that seems right, but to do things your way. Help us to share with others your, your thoughts, your ways. Help us to learn them better ourselves and be so pliable to the Holy Spirit that he can change us quickly. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.